Welcome to Sports Lit. I'm Neil Acharya. And I am Nathan Sager. Today our guest is Barry Shepley, a preeminent driving force in building triathlon in Canada. He built it from the ground up, essentially, with the help of a few others. He joins us to discuss chasing greatness, stories of passion and perseverance in sport and in life. His memoir from Balboa Press, released this past June. Imagine you could be there for the launch of a sport, shape it and watch it grow. Barry Shepley got to do that with triathlon as a young man growing up in Harrow, Ontario. All right, in uh, Essex County, uh, near Windsor, I think. That's right. He Ah. dreamed, you got it, Nate. He, um, geography for 200, please. Um, He he dreamed of becoming part of the Olympic movement after watching uh, swimmer Alex Bauman set a world record en route to gold at L.A. 1984. He would eventually see the day when triathlon would be accepted into the program of the Summer Games, and prior to that, he would watch the sport blossom from literally nothing in Canada. Indeed. We likely just came into this knowing Barry Shepley is synonymous with triathlon due to what He's done in the last 20 years commentating on the Summer Olympics and where you know him as the fellow who coached Simon Whitfield, the inaugural men's triathlon gold medalist. Now, Neil, you and me uh, and Simon Whitfield, we all grew up in Kingston. So we knew about Simon Whitfield long before that Olympic gold medal in, in 2000 made him famous. But when he won, we were young adults. We, we had no idea how much work A goes into an athlete getting to that level and how much it took to get a new athletic discipline into the Olympics, at least in those days when the IOC wasn't desperate for anything that might make, you know, 24 year olds, olds watch. Um, so we had no idea how sports people such as Barry or the late great Les McDonald worked so hard to make it happen, to, you know, make this to formalize the sport and grow it internationally. Like triathlon, uh, which is, you know, Kenny Powers once described as trying to be the best at exercising (laughs) with, uh, you know, swimming, biking, and running. Uh, It could have easily stayed as some sort of subculture and not become institutional with Olympics and world championships. But people such as Barry Shepley and his contemporaries, you know, loved the sport and and saw that it deserved to uh, have people hustling and advocating for it on, on that business and marketing side. Well put, Nate. Institutional. It really feels like an institutional sport. So when you're researching the Olympics, you I mean, people, I know I was surprised. I mean, I saw it happen, so I guess I wasn't as surprised as most people. But I think most people would be surprised to go back and say, oh, wow, this this just became part of the, uh, the Olympic program in the 21st century when it seems like it could have been part of the original Olympics in 1896. Mm-hmm. Um in some ways, now I don't know how uh, the bicycle, how bicycles, <laughs> with the technology behind bicycles at that time, but I think it probably could have been pretty close to one of the first Olympics. Um, so back to Whitfield, he was part of Kids of Steel, 
And that was an organization Shepley founded to expose kids to triathlon. Um, so he found, you know, he was getting there the right idea for the grassroots. And so he was, he was sobbing sloppy tears, he says in his book, when Whitfield won gold, um, because he had that lived experience. And we talked about that in our last episode with, with John U. Bacon about people, you know, having a lived experience, appreciating something a little more. Um, so he had that lived experience of, of watching triathlon get to this point watching simon whitfield from kids of steel and then all of a sudden he's he's the first male triathlete that to win gold um now going back to to where this was where this sport was in canada he calls uh triathlon uh in canada in the 1980s like the wild west so when it comes to bootstrapping uh, a very popular term these days with that's associated with technology Shepley is the textbook textbook sports example. Um, here's a guy who used his dorm room at McMaster University as an office to organize races uh, when he founded the Ontario Association of Triathletes. Um, remember, his association uh, predates, so I mean, I guess it's needless to say, his association uh, with the sport predates the formation of the International Triathletes Union, um, which was the governing body, is the governing body, and, and that you you have to you need that to to make it an olympic sport mm-hmm. yeah right you said and it, it's uh here this is one of those classic bet on yourself stories now i usually you know cast a spocky and eyebrow when when i hear that term because usually you find out somewhere down around the eighth paragraph oh by the way the bank of mom and dad you know underwrote mo- this uh, huge gamble but no <laughs> that's not the case for barry shepley i mean he definitely tells a lot of stories about you know having to live on a survival budget in the in the years before 2000 and there was a point where he and his uh you know now now dearly departed mother were were clandestinely roommates in his all-male residence hall at mcmaster university right here in hamilton where i live uh so yeah this is this is a story of of struggle paying off now interestingly um the reason uh, barry ended up in hamilton at mcmaster is he was going to study engineering Back, back in the day as a you know teenager in the 1980s. Now, of course, the thing about engineering, speaking as someone who has an engineer in his family, is it requires you know being obsessive about how things are put together. Let's make this 5% sleeker. Let's make this uh, use 15% less attri- electricity. Well, for Barry Shepley, I guess the machine that enthralled him was the human body, which you know led to him you know pursuing you know physical education studies and eventually into coaching and building up triathlon and he and uh, co-founded uh, personal best is toronto based uh, health and human performances which he and his spouse karen shepley and longtime friend sheldon Prasad have had for over 30 years uh so anyway anyways i guess we're really looking forward to doing a, an episode in the world of athletics we've only had i guess one Again, well, I guess we've had two. We had Mark Hebsher's book, The Greatest Athlete, you've mm-hmm. never heard of back back in the early days. And then mm-hmm. last year, Perdita Felician, the hurdler, came on to talk about her memoir, My Mother's Daughter. But, you know, so this will be num- number three. We got three. We're on the podium now. <laughs> uh, and, of course, triathlon. The beauty of that and all, all the other endurance sports is how, you know, they are relatively accessible. You just have to get outside and, uh Throughout the book, uh, Barry Shepley talks about people from various different walks of life and athletic backgrounds. He convinced uh, to go out there and just, you know, compete against yourself and look forward to uh, 
you know, grinding out those kilometers and getting in the pool or whatever, and you know, look forward to that release of endorphins as just sitting agony on your couch for the rest of the night, I guess. <laughs> yeah, for sure. He has taken on a wide range of clients um, uh, across the gamut. So maybe at the end, Nate, I'll ask him. We'll give him our profiles and see uh, if he'd take us on and and, and turn us into a uh, you know a well-oiled machine that can tackle the water. Uh, the you know cycling and running um well maybe 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 not okay so <laughs> so um again you mentioned his commentary uh he's he's been a long time commentator with cbc started in uh 2004 at athens i believe he's been a uh, you know in the booth for every triathlon since um he started with legendary play-by-play commentator steve armitage and it's uh you know legendary gets thrown around a lot but Steve Armitage really fits that bill. He recently retired, so shout out to Steve Armitage. And and now um, I think he's been working alongside Signa Butler. Um, he also commentates triathlon across the world. Uh, he has a funny story in his book about meeting uh, a man in Japan whose job was to translate all of his uh, English commentary into Japanese, um, which he found very uh, astounding and, and was very impressed by, given his, he's off the cuff so much. So, um, it, you know, in Canada, the triathlon is not what we call what we what we would call a marquee sport, um, and because of that, you may not know a lot about Barry unless you're really dialed in. Um, but today, we're going to learn about him and his accomplishments, what he's done for the sport, what he's seen, and why he loves it so much. So after the break. Barry Shepley. Welcome, Barry Shepley. How are you doing, sir? Well, as uh, the darkness gets happening earlier in the day, I'm finishing up coaching workouts in the dark. So that's never as a happy a time as in the middle of June when the days are getting longer. But it's part of the life of being a coach. And uh, <laughs> you're in Caledon right now, correct? Yeah, just north of the, the Toronto airport with all the traveling over the last 30 years, I was looking for something near an airport and <laughs> lots of green space and uh, open water to swim. So we found the perfect location in Caledon. Yeah, you have a lot of airport tales in your book, Chasing Greatness, which is what we're going to talk about today. And I know it's been a long time um, uh, since we you know, were able to finally track you down and, and coordinate everything. So thanks for, for making the time, especially after uh, training today, to talk with us. No, I appreciate it. And, you know, it, the, the book itself was such a, a fun project um, when you have 35 years to look back to, you know, Olympians, to 75-year-olds who've set world records, to, you know, people who lost 80 or 90 pounds. So it was it was a fun journey to just go back and catch up with some of those people. In some cases, you know, maybe it's been a decade since I've been in touch with them. When you know you're, you're you, when you do so many different things like yourself, um, you know, whether it's you're a commentator, you're a coach, um, you know, you're an organizer. When when you meet somebody quickly that's that's never met you, and there there are going to be people that are listening to this uh, podcast that may not know about you. What do you usually tell them first that you're you know what, what's the or, or or what's the order? Well, my father uh, still asks me when I come home at Christmas, <laughs> what is it that you do? Uh, so I'm, I'm never that uh, bummed out when when a, you know relative strangers ask me the question. It was uh, it was really fortuitous. And, you know, there's various phrases that when you find what you love, you'll never work a day in your life, and that kind of thing. 
And uh, as I was coming out of McMaster University in the mid 80s, I'd done some graduate research. I was coaching the university team. I had been started up with uh, the sport of triathlon. Um, I knew that I did not want to be in a box, you know, doing the same thing every day. And so fortunately, my business partner, Sheldon Prasad, uh, and my soon-to-be wife, uh, Karen Hyland at the time, now Karen Chapley, the three of us literally jumped off a bridge with $2,500 in our pocket, and we're not sure that there was going to be water underneath <laughs> that bridge. And it's been the greatest 30 plus years. We just hit our 32nd year, Sheldon and I and Karen, in being in business together. And our real objective was to take our knowledge of, of nutrition, of biomechanics, of injuries, our sort of fortuitous uh, skill of understanding human psyche and inspiring people, and just creating an environment where projects from events to helping people train for silly things like marathons or bike trips or Ironman races, you name it, um, that, that we spent our last 30 plus years playing. Like literally, I never looked at my watch in 30 years to say, when is it five or six or seven o'clock? And so, you know, I consider that to be the greatest, uh, you know, journey ever. Right. And then to meet all these fantastic people who now in some cases, their kids are coming to do training with us or training camp. So it's clear that we left some kind of positive impact on the parent when they're now 14 or 15 or 16 year old kids are coming to clinics and camps and training with us. So you're, you're talking about uh, when you're jumping off the proverbial bridge, uh, that's, you're talking about creating personal best in 1991. And there's also, um, we talked before we started recording about the C3 component. This kind of leads into some questions we had later on, but if you just want to give us a, a, a kind of a, a breakdown of what C3 is and, and in personal best, you talked about its formation, but maybe how they're different. Yeah, so personal best uh, was the actual thing that paid the bills over the years. And we did everything from run corporate wellness centers for some of the biggest companies that you can imagine uh, in North America. So, you know, the the Bell Mobilities and the General Motors and the manual lives of the world, we would have two or three of our staff right in their business, right in the building, doing everything from helping them do a spin class to, you know, training for a 5K to losing weight to coming back from pregnancy and, and so forth. So. Uh, we had the greatest fun staff whose job every day was to go in and make a positive impact on the lives of people in companies. So co the corporate personal best was one of the biggest things that we did. And then the second part of, of uh, personal best, more Sheldon uh, and myself uh, were working with people who had kind of individual performance goals. So Sheldon has put at least a dozen people through into Olympic teams and everything from sailing to boxing to you name it, figure skating. We've worked with Olympic athletes and helped them get on those Olympic teams for the last 30 years. Uh, and I've been a little bit more on the endurance side, and that's the you know the marathons, the triathlons, the bike races and adventure racing. So personal best was the thing that paid the bills. And along the way, we realized there were these fantastic athletes who had the motivation, who had the talent, what they did not have was the cash to buy an airline ticket to get to an event or some piece of equipment that they needed or a little bit of extra physiotherapy or massage therapy. Uh, so we created the nonprofit back in 1995 with a group of a dozen people who 
were businessmen and women who said, look, I get it. You know, these kids, when you're already famous and you're Sidney Crosby, do you really need another $500 or an airline ticket? No, you don't. But when you're 17 and you need to get to national junior champs or to Pan Am juniors, because that's the stepping stone to make an Olympic team, you really do. And so people like Simon Whitfield and Kyle Jones and, and Andrew York and other Olympians that have come through our program in the last 30 years, it might have been an airline ticket, it might have been a piece of equipment, but when I reflect back and talk to them years later, you know, there was that critical moment that these almost complete strangers came to my rescue, did a fundraiser, came to a silly golf tournament or a supper or threw, you know, some $100 bills into a hat, and I was able to buy an airline ticket or get a couple of extra, you know, days in warm weather training before a big race uh, for an athlete. And so... The nonprofit really helped the athletes with their equipment and personal best. And Sheldon and Karen and I were the kind of coaching side of things to take care of the technical aspects. Well, we're going to ask you about about Simon a little later. And I, I, I but what, for what you were just saying, I, it, it reminds me of something when I had a chance to interview Simon uh, many, not many years ago, I'd say about seven or eight years ago. Um, he, he called it, uh, he said, but, you know, before he was, kind of high profile per se he, he did something called credit card racing which i'd never heard of before which <laughs> lots think, of them do yeah which you can you can explain what credit card racing is to our listeners well i mean it is the highest ultimate pressure and it was one of the reasons why i wanted to start c3 because i i saw athletes who failed under credit card pressure which is <laughs> uh, you need to get an airline ticket or you need to get a piece of equipment or you need a couple nights in a hotel and the only way you're paying back that bill in 30 days without 25% interest rate is you had to get to the race and come on the podium first or second or third. You get a flat tire, you eat a bad you know, street meat burrito uh, <laughs> and don't finish the event. You are now gonna be eating a thousand dollar airline ticket that you thought you could you know, pay off and now you can't. And so you know, there were a few athletes who were incredibly special like Simon who, you know, literally the dude was the king of pressure you know he could manage it it's one of the reasons why on his first big trip to the olympics the debut of the olympics he won he won you know major titles like commonwealth games and so forth but for the average person you can imagine you're standing there waiting for the gun to go off and you know that there's only three or four or five paychecks it's not like professional baseball where if you sit inside the baseball diamond for the entire nine innings and don't get asked to go out you still are going home with your $11,000 paycheck at the end of the day. Mm. Uh, amateur athletes are living on the edge and it's tough. And so one of the things we wanted to do is reduce the pressure on some of those things. And there are a number of organizations around Canada that have done fantastic work similar to what we've done in a, in a small grassroots area, but wherever you can contribute, whether it's equipment, whether it's you know buying an airline ticket or whatever, it takes the pressure off so the athlete now can actually just go out and perform and not feel, oh, my God, if, you know, if I miss that, that's by a second, I can't pay the bills. And that's not that's not a fun pressure to have. Well, you know what, Barry, uh, we're, we're going to go back to the beginning uh, and, and, and ask you about basically your association with triathlon. And then Nate's going to jump in as well. Um, I've hogged the, the airtime yet again. Um, I want to. So, yeah, let's start with your association with triathlon. It begins in the 1980s. And can you paint the picture of 
what the scene and it, I think there was really no scene was like in Canada at that time for the sport. Yeah. So again, for the listeners, I mean, the very first triathlon, you know, essentially was this Hawaii Ironman dozen idiots in 1978, <laughs> you know, just trying this thing, a dozen people in Honolulu, no road closures. You had a guy driving along in a car with a map and that was 1978. And because of proximity of, you know, kind of the United States to Canada, um, Canadians on the West Coast, particularly by the early 80s, had started to hear about the sport. And it was a swim and a bike and a run. And it was done because people who ran every day got injured and they still get injured if they run every day. So the, the breaking up the workouts over different body parts over different days seemed to be a smart strategy. And so... While the word triathlon came around, it really was cross training. You know, I swim a little bit, I'll bike a little bit, I'll run a little bit. Maybe in the winter, I cross country ski a little bit. And I just happened to be literally coming along uh, in the late 70s, early 80s. And when I tried to find the association, there was no triathlon Canada, there was no triathlon Ontario or triathlon Quebec, whatever. And so uh, I was running with a professor at McMaster University and he convinced me to start up the association. He would give me a credit for one of my admin classes if I wrote the paper. So I wrote the paper, we took it to the government and as often happens with governments, they're slow to act and you know, <laughs> they, they didn't really act. They, they were, well, we'll get back to you. Well, six months goes by, no answer. And so uh, on another run with the professor, now I'm at McMaster University, his name is Dr. Frank Hayden. Um, we just decided why not start our own association. So I put a call out to every triathlete little kind of from Ottawa to Kingston to Windsor to Collingwood, Thunder Bay. We showed up in Burlington and by the end of the three hour meeting, uh, I had been elected as the president of Triathlon Ontario. I'm 21 years old. I'm living in Edwards Hall at McMaster University. And so the office for Triathlon Ontario was Edwards Hall. The telephone number for the hotline was my outgoing telephone line. And I was the president uh, and at some point the coach. And as Triathlon Canada was starting to be formulated, its head office started out of British Columbia. I was logical, you know, as Triathlon Ontario to be a part of that board. And because of my real passion was coaching, um, I eventually became the national coach in the early 90s. And one of the biggest concerns that I had was that every sport that I look at, if you look at today, there's a thousands and thousands of kids who play soccer or swim or hockey or tennis, whatever it is, and a few adults and elites at the top. Triathlon was completely opposite. There were zero kids and tens of thousands of adults who were like coming into the sport every month, every year, right across the country. And so I came up with the idea of a program called Kids of Steel and you know stealing from the idea of iron man kids of steel mm. and so i uh, literally got a company in downtown toronto uh naively convinced them to put up a check and to pay for uh, some t-shirts and medals and and uh kids first summer of racing and uh, rented a van and for a whole summer drove across the country to as many places as i could find who would get a swimming pool or a small lake and that within two years, we had over 40 races across the country. But that very first summer, a very small town called Charbot Lake outside of Kingston, it's a little cottage place with about 50 cottages, 
uh, I convinced a person to help me put a race on there, and their next door neighbor in Kingston was a 12-year-old boy named Simon Whitfield. And so <laughs> Simon came up to the cottage with his buddy, did his first triathlon with a hockey helmet on on a mountain bike. <laughs> Uh, and I could see that this kid had something special. I mean, it doesn't, you don't have to be very bright as a coach when you see somebody moving just beautifully. You know, they just glide when they're running and so forth. And, and so Simon and his parents came to a dozen races over the next couple of years, um, brought him to training camps. And uh, when he was just about to turn 16, he went, uh, his father was an Australian, and he convinced his dad to let him go to Australia, to Sydney, to do his grade 11 and 12, uh, all by himself, staying at a boys' boarding school with his parents living in Kingston. And uh, I was happy and sad, happy that this kid had this great opportunity, sad because Australia was the hub of the sport in the 90s. Uh, and I'm like, this kid's never coming home. Uh, and so he got over there, he, he learned the sport at another level. And uh, by the mid nineties, triathlon had been, they was going to make its debut in Sydney. It had been selected as a brand new full metal sport in Sydney. He's living 11 kilometers from the race course and he has a dual passport. His parents, his dad was an Aussie, his mom's a Canadian. And so I'm like, dude is never coming home. <laughs> he could be living in, in Sydney training on Bondi Beach, getting ready for the Olympics down the street, or he could come back here where we have snow for five months of the year. Um, but he called and said, look, I'm a Canadian. I feel I, I want to come back to Canada and compete for Canada. And like, it was the greatest thing that has ever happened to the sport in Canada, for sure. He's, you know, went to four Olympics, won the debut gold medal, won another medal in Beijing, dozens of titles. Uh, but more than just being a winning athlete, he was just this incredible ambassador for the sport. And so because of that, CBC decided, hey, let's cover this sport. This is a cool kid. Uh, and I happened to be lucky enough uh, to, to start doing some commentary for them right off the bat. And so I've now been to five Olympics doing CBC coverage just because some kid in Charbot Lake you know, did his first triathlon with a mountain bike hat helmet, and I met him. I mean, that's really my my fortuitous good luck. And and what was impressive about what Simon asked for? I guess in the mid '90s, when there's when C3 isn't what it is today, and when own the podium isn't around, what was impressive about what he asked for when you asked? We're trying to figure out what would he need to get to qualify for Sydney. Yeah, he was so bright. You know, like you and I would say, show me the money. Like, you know what, I'm, literally he was driving a car with no back window and you'd have to start pumping the brakes 50 meters before the pool <laughs> because run into the side with no brake fluid. I'm thinking dude's going to ask for cash. He's broke. He's not getting massages. He's got old equipment, but he didn't. He said, I need training partners. And I'm like, wow, what a mature young guy to be thinking about the big picture. You know what, I can always find a bike I can always you know figure out an airline ticket or something but I need daily training partners and so I moved to Victoria British Columbia in the late 90s I had to get all my credentials to be uh, accredited to go to the Olympics and I said to Simon you know you know let me let me get some bodies here to help you and he he made me a bet that I couldn't get five athletes or six athletes I forget what the number was to move to Victoria. And so I called Cornerbrook, Quebec, right across Ontario, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, right across the country, Alberta. And within a matter of about two and a half weeks, I had over two dozen athletes who wanted to move to Victoria to train with Simon and myself 
and they all had the same problem. You know, they owed fourteen, fifteen, eighteen thousand dollars of student loans, and they couldn't afford to like move out there and have no place to live and have to pay for rent. So Simon and I and a couple of other athletes uh, went on a little rampage for about three nights, and we dropped off a thousand flyers around Sandage Pool. If anyone's been out to Victoria, where the Commonwealth Games Pool is. And within a matter of about eight days, I had two dozen families who said, look, I've got a granny flat. My kids are gone. They've moved out of the house. There's a basement apartment. And all of these athletes for absolutely free had a new home, a new family. Uh, and I tell the story in the book. One day, I literally couldn't afford to do anything other than bring my mountain bike out. And I'm living in residence with 17-year-olds. And I'm riding myself to the swimming pool in a cold, damp, you know, February raining morning. And I see a couple of my athletes driving by in SUVs from the family that they're living with. I'm going, who's got a better deal here? But these families were spectacular. And in many cases, they've stayed on as supporters of triathlon 25 years later. Uh, but that was this, you know, odd family. We, we, we borrowed pool time because we had no budget. So I went looking at the swimming pool and this thing is sitting there every day for about two hours and 10 lane, 50 meter pool with nobody in it in the middle of the day and convinced them to let me have a couple lanes of swimming pool for free. So our whole national program, you know, in 98, 99, going into 2000 was a volunteer coach, no high performance budget for pool or anything else. Um, and out of that, you can imagine where my mind was blown when September of 2000, this kid wins the gold medal against the Americans who've got a, you know, a million and a half dollar a year budget, and the Germans with a two million dollar budget, and the Aussies who, you know, wanted him to stay there, and and who comes up with the gold medal? But this kid, who the only thing he asked for was training partners. <laughs> and how much does that whole arc, you know, you know, maybe reflect something you write early in the book, which is. What I've learned over the past 40 years is that sole purpose comes from trusting your gut. Yeah, it, you know what? I mean, I, I never was motivated by money uh, and, and still not today. And so I think that I was fortunate that I just found that I, I had, you know, th it's interesting. I talk about this in the book. If I was just 2% better an athlete, I would have said, screw all this. I'm going to try to be the athlete and forget all this other hard work behind the scenes for the next 45 years of my life. But pretty quickly, I realized that bowling was not in the Olympics, <laughs> and I desperately wanted to go to the games. Uh, and I tell the story of, you know, I'm working at Chrysler, making bands in July of 1984, and all of the cafeteria is transfixed watching the television as Alex Bauman, this kid from Sudbury, you know, beats every German, every American, every Aussie to win the, uh, the I am Olympic gold medal in swimming. And, and that moment is the most addictive thing I've ever had because I looked around at people who never said boo to each other in the cafeteria for the entire summer. And yet they're hugging each other because a Canadian kid with a maple leaf on his peck has just beaten everyone in the world. And that was this kind of crazy drug that I wanted desperately and wanted it initially for me and when I realized that bowling is not in the Olympics and I'm not six foot nine and I don't have a hundred mile an hour, you know, fastball, I was, I was going to be doing it on the other side of the curve. And so I quickly, quickly realized that my strength was helping others. It wasn't going to happen myself uh, as an elite athlete. And so I was at peace with that right from the very beginning. And then it was once that came to grips, 
It's okay, what can I and my friends and my family and my business partner, what can we do to help Canadians, even though we don't have the budget and the population and the weather in many cases, like, but if we're a little more creative and a little harder working, maybe we can, you know, beat some of the big programs. And, and I remember this one moment will stay with me forever. We're in Japan. All the other Americans flew over a week in advance to get over jet lag and heat acclimatization. And Simon and I and a couple of the other boys got in literally the morning before. So, you know, we've got 20 hours and we're racing. Their muscles are stiff. We, we weren't on first class seats on the back of the airplane. And, and I walked by the Americans uh, door and it's open and they've got three tables of guys getting massages in their room. We have no massage therapy. We haven't been there for a week. And it, it pissed me off so badly that I literally went down the street. I found a, a it was, we're in, in Japan, found a Japanese guy who had a massage place. He didn't speak English, but I'm drawing little stick figures and he wanted my jacket and $100 American. And he came back to the room and did massages on all of our athletes. I mean, that's how, you know, A, unsophisticated, but on the other side, you're not going to beat us. We're going to find solutions, even though we're not overly financed. Uh, and that really spoke to a lot of Simon's career. I mean, he didn't necessarily need to be in the richest, best pool, in the biggest locations. Uh, and in many cases, he and other athletes across the country, you know, the Adam Vancouverians almost take a bit of pride of like, we're, I'm going to do this the kind of dirty way. You know, I'm not going to have all the best of everything because that's going to keep me hungry. Yeah, quite the, you know, a lot of these experiences, I don't know if that one was in the book, but yeah, I mean, definitely the idea of bootstrapping is uh is is uh, you know, a term we we talked about off the top uh before we started talking talking to you which is associated with, you know, like tech startups really, but uh yeah, bootstrapping is <laughs> you know all about that. Um you you know you as a grad student you spent time in labs and then you also like Nate asked you you know you have statements like you know you gotta you, you know your sole purpose comes from trusting your gut so I wanted to ask you about that balance because I mean it's a loose connection but we interview a lot of people in hockey and baseball and football and there's the analytics talk and the eye test and I wanted to know how that that factors into triathlon you know when you say you know you're you got to trust your gut but you've also been in a lab how does that balance tie into what you do for a living in, in training these high performance athletes? Well, I think it would be a mistake to silly not to use science as much as you possibly can. And so, you know, whether it's lactate testing or VO2 max or, you know, like now we can do things under with MRIs and other things to look at fiber typing and muscle muscle fibers, that kind of thing. So there is science and it's silly not to use that science. Absolutely. No question about it. But I think if you take a look, some of the greatest coaches I've ever met, you know, they had they they all that science ultimately did was validated what they believed in new uh, four or five or six years before some piece of equipment could come along and tell you why they felt that way. Hmm. So I think there's a there's a certain keen eye that coaches who've been around for a very long time, uh, you know, and smart coaches, I think, use the balance of the two. You look at analytics and metrics and things that can work from heart rates to, you know, temperatures. You know, one body, one athlete sweats at a higher concentration and therefore they need more electrolytes in their drink. You know, there's all of that science, which would be absolutely silly not to optimize and to maximize. But I think when you get to that last piece of the pie, um, you need to kind of look at an athlete and understand 
you know, will this athlete be able to endure the kinds of tough mental aspects that highest performance of sport are? And I can show you 50 athletes whose data were equal to Simon and superior in some cases, and yet, yet they never made it because when it came to that hunger factor, when it came to that kind of just being a little bit, you know, like how to, how to look at another athlete's weakness and take advantage of it. I mean, there's little tiny nuances when you're at the highest level. And that's what makes the Sidney Crosby's and, you know, the Wayne Gretzky's and the Steve Nash's. In most cases, you know, you can't physiologically say that Sidney Crosby or Wayne Gretzky, certainly Wayne Gretzky, was not physiologically different than anybody else in the NHL. And, you know, they just weren't. But there was a combination of psychological, of emotional, of thirst, of hunger. Uh, and when you put that mixture together, and as an elite coach, I see it incredibly rare, like incredibly rare. You know, you'll see a kid who has the burning desire and they just don't have the goods physiologically or they get injured on a regular basis and they just can't, you know, they just don't have the, the capacity to do the workload. Or if they've got, you know, the physiological body, they don't have the heart and desire to kind of do that, that tough thing that it takes. So the reason there are so few, you know, goats and champions are that you need the mixture of all of those things. So when a, when a Simon comes along, I knew at an early, early age that this kid had a incredible mixture of physiological skills, of cocky enough, of, you know, piss other people off enough, of confidence in himself enough that all those things would come together when no one else could be standing holding your hand, you know, when you're in game seven of a baseball game or the gun going off at Olympic Games finals. I mean, you got to have the goods. Your mom and your dad and your coach and nobody else can do it. You've got to kind of be, you know, have all the goods. Now, we can help you along that journey, but at the end of the day, you're going to one who's going to have to perform. Now, one person who was hungry to build acceptance of triathlon was uh, your friend, the late, great Les McDonald. For people who might not know know the name or and the legend, what did he bring to the table, which was probably literally his kitchen table in terms <laughs> of building the sport? Yeah, no, no person in my life has made a bigger impact on me personally in sport, number one on impacting more endurance athletes around the world, hands down, will never be changed. And so Les McDonald had moved from the UK, uh, raised by his grandmother, you know, hardworking, moved to Victoria, uh, to Vancouver, sorry, and was an electrician, uh, but a phenomenal athlete. He, he had been a boxer, he'd been a skier, he'd worked with Nancy Green, the, the skier uh, out in BC in the 60s. And then he got involved in this sport of triathlon and very quickly he won the Ironman in his age category five straight years. So he was a fantastic athlete, but he had this vision of getting triathlon into the Olympic games. And that became his priority on every single thing he did. So he was the triathlon Canada uh, president that I worked under when I was uh, one of the vice presidents and the coaches. But one of the things that he did, was he looked around the world and the world looked at him and he said, look, I'm going to get us in the Olympics. And you can imagine, here is rugby, here is tennis, here is golf that are 30, 40, 50 years ahead and paid staff around the world. They're gonna kick triathlon's butt getting into the Olympics. Well, guess what? None of them got in in Sydney. It was triathlon because of one guy who was relentless and who had a great story because part of his story was, we have this absolute equality sport unlike many sports still today, 
men and women did the exact same distance. They got the exact same prize money. They went on the exact same course. There was nothing, you know, inferior in the female experience compared to the male experience. And Antonio Samaraj, the Spanish IOC president, looked at this sport, said, we got to keep evolving. We need stuff that's exciting for television. So young people will keep watching. We love the fact that it had equality, that it had prize money for men and women, that it was television spectator friendly. And so uh, between the friendship of Les McDonald, the IOC president in 1993, it was declared Sydney will be the next Olympic Games in 2000 and triathlon and Taekwondo were both coming in to those Sydney Olympic Games. And so Les was the president for 20 plus years. He drove it through, you know, international television, Olympic Games. And the second that it got into the Olympics, the second it got in, it selected in 93, Dozens of federations around the world uh, started to fund their athletes and fund coaches and fund races in their in their countries. So, you know, in the 80s, Italy and Portugal and none of these places, Sweden, were in the sport. Now they're creating world champions. Little Norway uh, creating the Olympic gold medalist in the in the last Olympic Games. Bermuda, the female Olympic champion. All of that 100 percent is a 70-year-old Canadian man from North Vancouver who sadly passed a couple of years ago, uh, but he literally drove it into the Olympics. He understood the importance of television. He understood that it was the right moment for equality for men and women. And at the very first World Championships, uh, the French government who was hosting the Worlds had tried to renege and only were going to have prize money for the men and not the women. And so Les went to the men, the elite men uh, who were racing and said, look, guys, I need you to all say you're not going to race. We, we're a sport that believes women are 100 percent equal to you guys and they deserve equal prize money. And I expect you to not race. And so the men backed uh, Les's request and the French government backed down and gave equal prize money to the, the women. And from that day onward, men and women at every race, including the Hawaii Ironman that I was just at uh, a week ago, give absolute equality in prize money for men and women. And you don't see that, you know, for example, the women have been fighting it in soccer and basketball and in other sports, but triathlon, you know, since the nineties have had absolute equality. And that's because of this Les McDonald. So he carried my butt around the world. There's no way I get these international commentary gigs in the nineties and early two thousands. If he isn't the guy, but he believed in me, he gave me a chance. And then once I had mastered my skills, other countries around the world and commentating opportunities kept coming up because I had kind of been in early. I knew the athletes, I'd had some skills I developed. And so I 100% owe that uh, to Les McDonald for sure. It's a, it's, you know, just talking about the pay equity uh, and, and, you know, the equal treatment across the board, obviously that's been big. That was a big uh, theme throughout the last, I think, two Olympics in the, the Beijing, the Winter Games, and prior to that in Tokyo. Um, I want to ask you about uh, Sylvain Pontus um, and um, a female from Canada. And we all know Simon Whitfield, but what did she do for the sport in Canada? And could you explain her background? Yeah, well, so you can picture, uh, the, you know, the Ironman, as I said, started in 1978 in Hawaii. That was 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike ride, 26 mile run. And these twin sisters, Sylviane and uh, Patricia uh, Pontus were from Quebec. They were winning all of these races and they went to that very first world championships I talked about. And by the time we get into 1983 and 84, 
they have literally crossed the line and won the Hawaii Ironman. Sylviane won it two years in a row. Her, her sister was second to her. And so here's one of the biggest races in the world on ABC Wild World of Sports. And these Canadian women, beautiful twin sisters from Quebec, are winning the biggest race in the world in the 80s. Uh, and so they, they were putting us on the map. And for many, many years after that, people like Laurie Bowden and Lisa Bentley and Heather Fjord and Peter Reed went on to win the Hawaii Ironman one and two and three times in some cases. But, you know, they had uh, kind of like a godmother ahead of them who was winning that race, showing that a Canadian from snowy little country can go to Hawaii in the heat and race the Americans, the Aussies and the Germans and the Brits and beat them all. And they were fantastic role models for Canada in those early years. You know, I, I had them on my first national teams that I coached, and we were incredibly fortunate that they just happened to be ahead of their time. They eventually went back to Quebec, and they I think they ran some of Celine Dion's uh, restaurants for her hmm. as after they retired uh, from triathlon. But they, they still are iconic. When I was in Hawaii last week, they still have these big posters up of every winner who has ever won the race. And, you know, there were five or six Canadian posters up which I always take great pride as I'm walking through there because there's only a half dozen countries that have ever had an athlete that won the Hawaii Ironman and Canada's had five or six. You know, I just want to go back a little bit and thank you for explaining who she is because um, I learned about her through through your book and then um, going on the Triathlon Canada website, uh, the governing body here. So obviously to get the sport to the Olympics, there needed to be the formation of an international body, which was the ITU uh, in 1989. So, um, how, where did triathlon Canada proceed? Did it precede that? Like how, like where, when was triathlon yeah, we were Canada? A couple years. Uh, so yeah. triathlon Ontario happened first yeah. and then within 12 months, uh, Tri-Can triathlon Canada had been formed and I'm on that board with this hardworking, just psychotically driven Les McDonald. And ironically, uh, the Ironman ties into the formation of, of the international triathlon union because there was no place in the world that all these triathletes were, you know, kind of getting together and making rules and deciding things. The only time back in the 80s that there was ever a, a real stimulus or density of triathletes was at the Hawaii Ironman. So Les was there, he raced, he won his age category, and he put out a challenge to all of these athletes, you know, to, to get a representative or two from their country to come to the first ever formation of the international body. And so in 1988, they made this decision. Next year, in, in, uh, after the Hawaii Ironman, we're all gonna meet uh, a few months later in Aviol, France. And so in 1989, the ITU was formed. This Canadian Les McDonald became the president. Um, he, he, for a period of time, remained president of TriCan, Triathlon Canada, and the International Triathlon Union, but soon there was just too much work to be done on the international body and uh, some more people stepped forward in Canada and, and took on that national role as president. But he, he maintained that role and, you know, his, his real claim to fame on many levels, but it'll be the Olympics because now kids in countries are getting, you know, funded coaches, funded support, some equipment, some camps and so forth that, you know, would never have happened had it not been for less. And, he also had this incredible eye and his eye said to him, look, a swimming pool is a swimming pool anywhere in the world. You know, Michael Phelps, you don't know Michael Phelps in Beijing or he's in Sydney or he's in wherever. You just know he's a dude in a 50 meter pool tearing it up. 
So you don't really get to see the country, but in a triathlon, you're outside. And that very first Olympic triathlon, you know, you saw them dive in right in front of the opera house and swim, you know, right in the uh, the bay there. And then they're out riding through Macquarie Street and through the parks and downtown you know, Sydney. The opera house is there. The bridge is in the backdrop. The helicopters are all over. A half million people are on the streets. It literally was the postcard to show off Sydney. And it was the not by, you know, bad luck. I mean, the first morning was women's triathlon started off the Olympic Games. So you got to see the country in the first 15 minutes of the 2000 Olympic Games. And that second morning, you know, an unknown kid, Simon Whitfield, wins the gold medal. And so, you know, we were on like the sport just went right through the kind of uh, the, the ozone immediately because we had huge crowds they were free for 450,000 people because you're out on the street. So it was only the people who paid for tickets sitting in front of the opera house uh, and the big screen. But otherwise, you know, a half a million people got to see a free Olympic sport in downtown Sydney and the rest of the world. Two billion people got to watch it on TV. So we, we made an impact from second one. And we were fortunate, you know, Dick Pound, who was an IOC vice president, Canadian, you know, it's handing out a medal to a Canadian athlete. Like, how cool is that? Well, you know, I'm glad you bring up Sydney again because I, I, you, and you mentioned the women's race. So everyone remembers Simon, especially in Canada, but the women's race was first, and there's a huge contrast in how that played out for this country. So, could you briefly explain what transpired uh, for for Canadian athletes in that women's sure. uh, triathlon that kind of you know, maybe it, it was a, a bit rough, let's say. Oh, so it, it was totally rough. And you can imagine, I'm a brand new coach. I had no mentor coach. No one's ever been there to kind of mentor me. I, I've had this vision since 1984 of Alex Bauman winning the gold medal and the anthem. And I naively was going into that first morning dreaming about hearing the Canadian anthem. And we had two athletes particularly. One was Carol Montgomery, who was ranked number two in the world. So a legitimate chance to win the gold medal at the Olympic Games. And she had done something that had never been done before or since. And that was she made two Olympic Games sports at the same Olympic Games. So she was on the 10,000-meter track team where she had run 32 minutes for 10K. And she was also on the triathlon team where she was, you know, favored to win a medal, if not the gold medal. And we had a world-class athlete named Sharon Donnelly, who was a Royal Military graduate, had been the Pan Am Games champion the year before. So we're going in there with these two women particularly who legitimately could medal and maybe win the whole thing. And so I am, I am six inches off the ground that morning because I've literally, I can feel 1984 Alex Bauman anthem coming at me. <laughs> and within less than uh, the 1500 meter swim takes 18 minutes. And within a lap and a half into the 40-kilometer bike ride, Carol uh, catches a wheel of another athlete, goes down, breaks her arm, is now out of the triathlon and the 10,000 meters. And within another lap, Sharon Donnelly goes down in a crash. And so our two best athletes are in the hospital. I am not hearing an anthem. I've got parents who are crying, media who are asking me questions about how and why. I wasn't ready for that kind of, you know, just getting thrilled by, by people <laughs> coming at me. And it was, oh, my God. Uh, and so by the time I get back to the residence with Simon, who was my roommate, 
you know, I look like a ghost. And it was Simon calming me down. He had watched the race on TV. He knew the disappointment of the girls, the broken bones. And he just said, look, I'm ready. Don't worry about it. We'll get this job done tomorrow. And I'm like, you know, here's a kid who's, you know, whatever, eight or nine years younger than me. We both were young, uh, both inexperienced, but he was the one who calmed me down. And, you know, the next day he was a guy who got the job done. Yeah, the first ever male triathlete is a gold medalist from Canada named Simon Whitfield, who you saw in Charbot Lake. And But here's the thing. Um, you know, maybe it's the negative press talking here, but I'm going to, I'm going to ask you, I mean, if you look on, you know, he's, he's the only guy who's won any medals so far across the board. There's two medals. There's a, there's gold and a silver in 08. Um, yeah. Where, where, how do you view that? Do you, or do you feel like we should have more as a country? Do you feel like more is coming? Um, where, you know, where, so how do you see that? To that is yes and no. I mean, if you, Amazingly, if your viewers, listeners, go and take a look, Canada has an absolutely insane record of winning a medal, sometimes gold, but a medal at the first time a sport debuts at the Olympic Games. Beach volleyball, 1996, bronze medal. Women's mountain biking, Atlanta, you know, medal. Uh, uh, trampoline uh, medal, and I can keep going. Like, it's, it's crazy, our success mm. rate the first time a sport debuts. By the time we get to the second or third or fourth Olympic cycle, um, what I'm seeing is two or three things working against us. Other countries with larger populations putting a lot more money and resources into their um, athletes. And now suddenly you're seeing a population 20 times your size who have got six coaches and a lot more funds. And now there's a whole bunch more people fighting out for that trampoline medal or that mountain bike medal or whatever. So I'm not making excuses by any stretch, but it's odd that when it's at the beginning and everybody's kind of on almost equal footing mm. or close to equal footing, we're kicking some ass. When we get out there a little bit later on. So Own the Podium came along at a certain moment because of the lack of success in our Winter Olympics and our Summer Olympics when we hosted. So after all of those, you know, Montreal and Calgary, we didn't want to go to, to Whistler and have a third Olympics without a gold medal because we were the only country that had ever hosted and not got a gold medal when we hosted. So the, you know, the, the massive success in Vancouver Whistler was one part we were maturing as a country, one part we you know, are theoretically better suited for winter Olympic sports, uh, and one part we finally put freaking enough money into the sport where athletes had better equipment, better coaches, more money for training camps, and it showed up, you know, we, we led the medal count uh, in, in Whistler, Vancouver in 2010. The disappointment for me in triathlon is in many ways, uh, what, what occurred in those early days, honestly, was not systematic development of Simon Whitfield. You know, like if Simon Whitfield was one of 50 Sidney Crosby's coming down the pipe, and you knew two years later, there was another Sidney Crosby and another Sidney Crosby and another Sidney Crosby, we didn't have the funds. I was an unfinanced, uh, un, unpaid coach. And so by the time we kind of get into early 2000s, you know, we've got a coach or two that came after me that was paid, but we really didn't have a system of developing 20 little Simons and Carols uh, so that, you know, four or five of them matured into your top level athlete, whether that's speed skating, swimming or whatever. So 
Triathlon is, is still reeling as we speak to develop that system of having, you know, 100 good juniors and then 20 good 23 and unders and then six good elites of which two are going to maybe have a chance at a medal because Simon was a weirdo, one-off, freak of nature. You know, if I had not gone to Charbert Lake, the kid would have been playing three other sports at a very high level, but none of them at the Olympics. I mean, he was just a very a very good soccer player, a very good basketball player, uh, a great little track runner. And I still remember at the closing ceremonies, I mean, here we go into the, the Sydney Olympics. Nobody knows Simon, literally doesn't know Simon. He doesn't go to the opening ceremonies because he's competing in 36 hours and wants to save his energy, wins a gold medal, carries the flag into the closing ceremonies as Canada's rep. Um, and I can still picture this if it was yesterday, after he carries the flag in, you're all kind of on the infield and it's now chaos. People are having fun and trading jackets and doing whatever as kind of speeches are occurring. And some Spanish kid had brought his soccer ball onto the field. He was a soccer Olympic soccer player for Spain. And he's like heading the ball up and down off his knee. And Simon sees it and the ball rolls towards Simon and he flips it up from his foot onto his head, onto his knee and him and this kid who they don't speak the same languages. And this guy would have no idea that the guy who's bouncing a ball back and forth off his head to him has just won the gold medal in triathlon, not in soccer. <laughs> that, you know, that's who Simon was. He was a very good athlete. And you need a system to reproduce athletes, not just get lucky every 25 years that one Clara Hughes or one, you know, Adam Vancouver and comes along. You need a system. Yeah. And how well is, is that understood? It, uh, maybe among the media, among the general public? maybe even among like, you know, top sports executives in Canada, because I always try to stress that with uh, friends around the Olympics, it's not about having one. It's about have, like you said, having six good people because just, you know, just in case someone's off that day or, you know, someone else knows a team can pick them up, even if it's the sport as individual. Well, almost any of the sports that are having success have a system and a feeder system, you know, swimming, take a look. We've seen, you know, Macintosh and these other kids right. coming along for four or five years. So it's not a surprise right now that we're being incredibly successful in the swimming pool. And we saw our young female soccer players, you know, coming along six, eight, nine years ago. Ashley Lawrence lives in my town and I followed her career, you know, all the way along as part of the women's gold medal uh, soccer team. So you need to have depth. And I think every federation is recognizing that within the country. The challenge, you know, and it's a massive challenge, is that I think we need to have a serious, in my estimation, as a 35, you know, years of coaching plus, um, I don't believe we're in the right place right now in, as a country, because I don't think that there are enough kids who are just physically active. Um, so I take it back, like, I mean, all of Simon's magic happened in grade school and early high school, but grade school and early high school playing games, games. You ask him why he's successful because three hours a day, he was out back with friends playing games, uh, et cetera. So I think we need to get more kids, you know, not, uh, not all their hours spent in organized coaches on top of you with whistles and rules and all the other stuff. They need to learn how their body moves and learn competitive spirit and, you know, literally just open the doors and let the YMCA, you know, three on three basketball games happen and that kind of stuff. Yes, you will start to move kids in the programs with some coaches and some instruction and some that kind of stuff. But so in my estimation, there aren't enough kids physically moving, number one. 
I'm, it disgusts me when I see the kind of professionalization of youth sport and 10 and 15 and $20,000 of, you know, cost to join some of these leagues and extra this and extra that. Uh, and so some great athletes are just literally being priced out of ever being able to participate in sport. And, you know, some of the sports that we most care about, like ice hockey, I, I still play hockey. I'm a goaltender. Um, some of the prices are just putting kids, you know, out of sport. So I think we need more kids physically active. Uh, I'm, I was, a, you know, just retired as the chairman of the Coaching Association of Ontario. Coaches, in my mind, are, you know, it goes in the hierarchy for me, uh, parent, teacher, coach. And we need to just give more and more respect and resources so that coaches can be out there on weekends and keeping it fun and not making everything have to turn into, you know, massive, big tournaments, et cetera. Because most of Simon's success and other kids that I've seen have come from just being able to have more, you know, that 10,000 hours they talk about, whether it's accurate or not, it still is accurate in terms of the fact that you, your body did this stuff enough times playing around on an outside pond where nobody's able to get the puck off your stick, you know, mm. and down the road, you're that dude who, who has some magic on a hockey stick. So I'm a fan of let as many kids be active. Don't fight it out for like, I still see federations in this country fighting out to own athletes instead of saying, look, you, we just want you to be active. If you would be a better water polo player than a swimmer or a, you know, one of the places that we end up picking up athletes many cases are when swimming has lost, uh, you know, burnt out a kid. And I'm now taking a, an ex-swimmer and getting them into the sport because swimming is such an important part of triathlon. So I think the federations in the country need to be much more sharing and just care that a kid is still active. And I say if, if a kid is not active at 21 or 22, then you have failed as a federation and as a sport. If they're not doing this, you know, as they're graduating college and enjoying being active as a whatever that sport may be, then you have failed in my estimation. Mm -hmm. And one athlete, Barry, that we did want to ask about that you talk, because you talk about in the book and she's right at that age as a junior athlete, Kira Gupta Balthazar. Uh, what what's her like potential and and what and what's the stor story on the uh, on her? I see she's like running cross country in the U.S. college system and winning races. Yeah, no, you know what? She she was she was another Simon who who knew what she wanted well before anyone else did. She looked. She had swam with Penny Elisiak and all of these great swimmers, and she looked at her hands and her feet and said, "I'm putting the 30 hours of training in, but I can't move as much water as." the five foot nine, five foot 10, six foot girl can move. Like I'm motivated, but I can't do that. And I want to go to the Olympic games. So she literally tracked me down. I can still picture standing out on a pathway with her and her father one, you know, Sunday morning talking about what was possible. And so I, I mapped out a, a, a process for them if they were interested and probably eight times out of 10, when you map out something, the family disappears and you never see them again because it means Tomorrow, you got to be at a, you know, doing something outside of your comfort zone that you haven't been doing for the last five or six years. Kira and her mom and dad and one particular uncle, they all formed a team in terms of helping her. Somebody would drive because she's only 14 and couldn't drive to work out. So somebody was picking her up, someone was dropping her off. Um, but we had an entire family that backed her. And between, you know, my 35 years of how to speed the process up of teaching a young athlete who didn't know how to ride a bicycle, 
And one of the coolest things that we ever did, and, and I mean, it'll sound ridiculous to the to the listener, uh, but it, it's dividends paid 20 times over. Her, her uncle, who traveled a lot, had a million frequent flyer miles, said, look, I don't know anything about sport, but I'd love to help. What can I do? So I knew he traveled a lot. I said, I need you to buy two airline tickets to Copenhagen, one for your niece and one for another 16-year-old girl, for the two of them to come with one of the moms sit in the grandstands for three days and watch the World Triathlon Championships so that when I'm describing to her why she has to use her great swimming and be out of the water in the first three and transition quick onto the bike, she'll understand what we're talking about. And I thought for sure he would say that I'm not spending 800 bucks on an airline ticket to send a 14-year-old girl to Copenhagen to watch a race. Well, he did. A year later, she was racing at the World Junior Championships in the Gold Coast. She's gone to every World Junior Champs that she was eligible for. Last year, she won the NCAA, you know, best women's triathlete in America in college. Uh, and she just ran, won a cross-country race in the States on the weekend as well. So, you know, it's she is on her way. But, she, you know, again, it's a long journey. And one of the things that she and her family and I all sat down and talked about, Paris is probably a little early for her, not a completely off the, the charts, but it, you know, trying to be a, a full-on college student and trying to train for the Olympic Games at the same time is, is not an, an easy thing. So in all likelihood, uh, you know, she'll gain as much experience as she can between now and Paris. It's probably a longer shot, but not impossible, but she'll be graduated and ready for the LA Olympics in, uh, in 2028. And, you know, she'll be the right age, the right experience, mature, got a degree, all of that kind of stuff. So it, it's, it takes great pride for me knowing that these same volunteers that I talked about who've raised money, you know, have helped, you know, drive her, her bike to races and, you know, there to make sure that she was getting as much early learning as she possibly could. And so she literally went from watching these great swimmers get away from her uh, to you know, winning the NCAA triathlon championships in less than four years. For the for the sake of time, I know there are a couple of questions I wanted to ask, but I think we'll we'll go right towards because uh, we've had you on for about an hour now, um, and thank you for giving us this much time. Uh, I'm assuming you'll be in Paris as the uh, commentator again for CBC, and I'm, it'll be very scenic there, and, and you'll probably be working alongside Signa Butler, I, I believe, right? Well, you know what? I learned a long time ago in the universe never to assume anything. You go back right. to zero the day after everything ends and you work mm. your ass off and hope you've impressed enough people with your work ethic. Um, so I would mm. love to be in Paris. I mean, it, we've been there for races over the last mm. 20 years, mm. uh, but Paris will do a, a brilliant job of hosting uh, the Olympics. And in the sport of triathlon, they've got three or four now of the best athletes in the world so you know mm. it's going to show as a phenomenal sport in paris for sure well here here's my question i've, I've thought of a number of ways to ask this but i guess the first way is um <laughs> i was going to just give you like a breakdown of myself and nate as a person as a potential client to see what you would look for and what you would you know if you I guess I'll, I'll just boil it down to this. Have you ever refused? Have you ever refused <laughs> a, a refused a client, no matter how much money they would pay you? No, not at all. Let me tell you a, just a really fast, interesting story. So if I, if I think about, let's say, a marathon or a triathlon or the Ironman, I had a 61-year-old guy who could not put his face in the water, who did not own a bike, whose knees were a bit sore because he played college football 45 years before, 
and his son, who was 30 years of age, was coming to do an Ironman with me. And, and dad cornered me and said, look, this would be like the dream to do an Ironman with my son. Uh, is it possible? And I, I, didn't know, I didn't know he couldn't swim. I didn't know anything about his bad knees. All I needed to do was spend about 20 minutes to understand, you know, why would he want to do this? I mean, anything that you have to get up in the morning and do, whether it's go and do a weight workout or, or you know, get into the water or whatever the sport might be, there's a certain amount of repetitiveness. And you, when you know your why, why are you doing this? I want to do it with my son. I've always dreamed about this. I saw it on television. I'm trying to lose 50 pounds to change my blood pressure, whatever the why is. If it's important enough to you, then I guarantee you, I will get you through. And that guy, that was January of 2003 that we had the, the little supper. And in July, seven months later, he crossed the finish line of Ironman uh, Klagenfurt in Austria. And that's 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike ride, 26 mile run. He went on to do another Ironman a few years later and run a marathon, go to Boston. But this was a guy who was not an athlete for 25 years. So I never say never to <laughs> anyone. I always say, you know, let's sit down and ask the why. And is this something that we could do over two or three years? Or look, I've got one year before I'm going back to do my PhD or before my wife and I are going to have kids. You know, there's a thousand reasons why someone says it's got to happen in this next 12 months. And so literally, I'm, I'm, we've got a 95 or 96 percent success rate in there because the first priority is it has to be fun. The second priority is I have to keep you injury free and then we'll figure out how fast we get you there. You know, uh, I can guarantee you, Neil, you will not be winning <laughs> the uh, Ironman World Championships, but if you said I wanted to do that, I would guarantee you I could get you across the finishing line <laughs> in under the midnight hour. Nate, there's hope for us to become high-performance yeah. athletes still and not just uh, talk to people about their books about being high-performance I didn't say high-performance. I, high <laughs> I, I said I would get you across the finish line. Uh, yeah, you might have to drag us drag us across it. It's but, all good. Uh, that still counts. Uh, I love it. Well, you know what, Barry? Uh, thanks for uh, giving us so much time this evening. Um, and I know the weather out there in Caledon is nothing like it was in Hawaii. So, um uh, you know, you got to get out there and train again tomorrow in this weather. I'm sure you got to prepare for it. So thank you again. Listen, I appreciate it. And, you know, the book was just a, an amalgamation of these incredible people that I was lucky enough to meet and in few cases inspire. And, I, you know, I've been getting some feedback from those who have read the book and, and it's inspired some people to try their own things or whatever. So for me, that's the win all the way along. And, and that's really what the book was about. Yeah, we enjoyed reading it, and uh, we'll provide uh, some links as to where you can uh, listen to this podcast and uh, buy the book. So, Thank you so much, guys. I, I appreciate it. Looking forward to seeing you guys next year's Iron Man. <laughs> <You're good. laughs> Thanks, Barry.